This is Mo Lotman, and you're listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Greenfield, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction, which conducts research, offers addiction screening, provides educational materials, and receives patients from all across the U.S. He's a public speaker with appearances on CNN, NPR, and all the major networks, and a writer whose work has appeared in Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and many others. He was also author of Virtual Addiction, way back in 1999, before too many people were paying attention to this issue. So Dr. Greenfield, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. I've got a lot of questions for you, but before I get to those, I'm wondering if you can give our listeners a grounding on the basic idea, which you talk about a lot, which is the variable reward system that makes things so addictive. Yeah. So essentially what we're talking about is the variable ratio reinforcement schedule, which is essentially the way the reward circuitry in the brain responds to an addictive stimuli. So what we talk about is that the internet is essentially the world's largest slot machine. And every time you go online, doesn't matter what portal you're using to go online, whether it's a smartphone or a laptop or a tablet, you don't know what you're going to find, when you're going to find it, and how good it's going to be. It could be in the social media feed, it could be a Google search, it could be email, it could be text, it could be so, it doesn't matter what it is. The fact that it's unpredictable and variable makes it very much like gambling. And we know that the brain becomes habituated and resistant to extinction, e.g. addicted, when you have that variable ratio reinforcement and when the reinforcement is not predictable. Once it's predictable, it's less addictive. But the fact that it changes all the time and it's dynamic, which is what the Internet's all about, that's what produces the addictive nature of it. Yeah, it's a great description of the Internet. And I noticed that just a few months ago, then uh, the National Institutes of Health announced a new study that they're going to be doing. Correct, at, at, at my university, actually, at, at University of Connecticut. University of School Connecticut. Of That's fantastic. The first NIH study to look at video game addiction, uh, online video game addiction in the United States, which is telling you it's a harbinger of the fact that we now recognize this as a disorder that has reached near epidemic proportions. So why why the delay? It seems like in other countries like China, they've already acknowledged this a while back. Why the delay here in the yeah. States? Well, China, China claims that they have 25% of their youth population is addicted to video games. We don't have those kind of numbers here. Um, so that may be part of the issue. The other is the cultures are very different. The way youth um, game in China is they do it in what are called internet cafes. Yep. These giant rooms filled with carols with computers on them. And it's done in this sort of quasi-social networked way of uh, interacting. We don't really have uh, an analogous situation in the United States. So that may be part of the reason. And in China, as well as South Korea and some of the other Pacific Rim countries, it seems like this technology has taken on a, a much more serious level of abuse than in the United States. But I think in the United States, the numbers are not too, too far from where they are in China. But I don't think we're seeing anything close to 25%. Is there also some difference between how we treat it in, in terms of our culture? Yeah. So you, there's a, the Chinese culture is not an individualistic culture. So in the United States, everything is done on a one-to-one 
individualized in your own home, in your own apartment, in your own car. Everything is me alone. You right. know, the idea we, we have this rigid individualism that we celebrate in the United States. That's not the way an Asian culture operates. Right. It's, it's, it's seen in a more social, larger group format. So that may be part of the reason, although I, honestly I don't know why there's such a, a difference in the way it's treated in the two different countries. Um, also, don't forget China has a public health system that's much more advanced than what we have. in the, We don't really have one in the United States. Right. We don't really have a system that takes care of people's medical or psychiatric or addiction issues. China does. So these clinics that they've opened up throughout China are really run by the state. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to see an approach like the one in China here or no? Well, no, I would not like to see an approach in here like we have in China because I don't think the clinics in China are doing all that great a job. Ah, okay. So What's, what's happening there well, that you're aware of? Or? Their clinics are really sort of quasi-militaristic uh, almost like boot camps. Right. And um, I don't think there's any good data that shows that that's an effective form of treatment. Although removing anybody from the addictive behavior or the addictive substance can reduce the use or eliminate the use, the question is what happens when they come back. So I don't know how much real therapy is going on. There is a sort of this concept of militaristic like they're trying to retrain them um, behaviorally and give them more willpower and change their social system. But I don't know that there's any hard scientific or medical data to support that. So no, I would not want to see that in the United States. In fact, we only have one residential program in the United States right now. And then we have a few, we have our program, which is an intensive outpatient program. And then there are a few doctors, I mean, a bunch of doctors scattered throughout the United States that treat it. But we don't have anything close to what they have in China. I noticed that. I noticed there weren't that many. And were you going to start a residential treatment yourself? Yeah, we are in the process of looking into that. Um, It's a long, detailed, difficult process. And a very expensive one. So, I can imagine. Um, Bureaucracy-wise? Well, yeah. There's a huge amount of regulatory issues and bureaucratic issues and licensing issues yeah. and insurance issues and, and zoning issues. And so it's not a simple thing like, we want to do this and let's just do it. You have to go through a lot of hoops to get there. But is there? do you feel like there's a big need? Uh, I think there's a significant need, especially in the East Coast and in the Northeast. We have nothing right now on the East Coast or in the Northeast that is residentially based. Yeah. You said, I think, somewhere that your practice had grown like a thousandfold or something. Oh, like, or in terms of the cases. number, yeah, the number of cases that we've seen since we started um, back in uh, the late 1990s is probably a th- easily a thousand percent higher. How much of that is just because of awareness and how much of that is because there's a greater addiction? Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think that when I started this, you know, I was the first doctor in the United States to do a study that showed unequivocally that the Internet was addictive. And you're talking at a time I probably did that study in 1997, 98, 98, probably very early early, and it was also during the internet boom on the stock market. So people were not really thrilled. No, I can imagine. (laughs) They were not thrilled to hear that I was saying, well, not so fast. The internet may be addictive. So there was a lot of resistance to it initially. And in the medical field, um, there was not a lot of acceptance initially. I think that's completely different because I speak uh, now with the, uh, I get invitations to speak for the American Society of Addiction Medicine, 
the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So it has reached mainstream at this point. It is no longer considered uh, questionable whether this is a real addiction or not. Right. Do you feel like there's a consensus in the medical community or not really? Uh, There's a consensus that there's a problem. I don't think there's a consensus on exactly what to label it. Right. And what all the ideologic or causative factors are. And also, there's not a consensus yet in terms of how to treat it. But that's the same issue or lack of consensus that we have with all addiction medicine. Right. We really don't have an agreed-upon protocol for how to treat addiction. Right. I mean, in general, it everybody's got their unique way of doing it. We do know some things, and there are some evidence-based approaches. But in general, we don't have an agreement. And in an internet addiction is no exception. So it's still in the early stages of formulating what we know works and what we don't. I just wrote a paper that's going to appear in the headline journal for the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. It's coming out in April. And it's an article on the treatment of outpatient treatment of internet addiction and how what works and what doesn't work. So we do know some things that work, okay, but we can't know exactly yet which things are the absolute best and which things are not. And we don't have a label for it yet either. There's not an official label or diagnosis, although we're getting closer to coming up. You're talking in the DSM? Well, there is a a provisional diagnosis in the DSM-5. Okay. Which Which is the diagnostic? Yeah, which is online video game disorder. Okay. Yes, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for uh, Psychiatric Disorders. Um, As video game addiction? Yeah, online video game addiction. Now, I'm just curious... Does there need to be a separate designation for technology addiction, or can you fold it in with everything else? The way the the diagnostic categories are set up is we have really two categories. We have substance uh, abuse and we have substance dependence was the old way of doing it. Now we just call it substance use disorder. Okay. So you can't really call it a substance use disorder because the internet's not a substance. So it doesn't really fall neatly into that criteria. It doesn't fall into the criteria for pathological gambling, which is the other diagnosis. Well, what about behavioral disorders like sex addiction? That's well, not a substance. Sex, right. Be, be, uh, sex addiction is not a substance, nor is gambling, by the way. Right. Um, gambling is in the DSM. Sex addiction is not. Okay. And that's, that's probably behind internet addiction in terms of making it in. It's not even in there provisionally at this point. Okay. Interesting. But sex addiction and internet addiction are juxtaposed very strongly. Most people um, that develop a sex addiction start out on the internet. Mm. That's very interesting. One of the things that you've said that I think is kind of important is that the content actually doesn't ultimately matter in in a lot of ways. I don't think so. It does in one way. The, The content is basically the drug. The internet is the hypodermic. Okay. So the the internet is the delivery system. Now, there are some drugs that are more addictive than others. So, for instance, pornography, we know, is addictive, and it's always been addictive. Right. But the internet is such an efficient delivery mechanism. Right. And the the shortness of the latency between the click and the getting the drug delivered, which is the image on the screen, is so short it becomes inherently more addictive. We know that from addiction medicine, that if you use crack cocaine, it's going to be more addictive than regular cocaine because it gets into your blood system quicker. So the shorter the speed between the ingestion and the intoxication, the more, the more addictive, addictive. The more addictive it is. So the Internet's no different. So what happens with content is that if you take in a very addictive form of content like gaming or 
pornography or shopping for that matter, and you combine it with the internet modality or the hypodermic or the delivery system, you get what's called a synergistic amplification. There's a interaction between those two things and you get something bigger than both the sum of the parts. Right. The whole is much more addictive. Yeah. So gaming has been around a long time, but as soon as they combined it with the internet and online gaming was formed, it's become light years more addictive than it was before. And pornography is a national epidemic right now. And the internet is certainly responsible for the advance of that. And the pornography uh, business community has adopted technology very quickly. And they've always adopted Well, they're usually the first. They are the early adopters of all technological advances from the printing press on. Yeah. Printing press, movies, VHS tapes, certainly the a DVD, and then the internet. And because they, they, it's an opportunity to give people access to very stimulating content. So that makes it sound like there's a lot more people addicted right now. Is that true? We think there may be. I mean, we don't really know. I mean, my research came in at about 6%. I'm sorry, could you clarify what you mean? But... 6% of the population in the United States probably would meet the criteria for some form of internet addiction. But that would include smartphones. That yep. would include computers, any portal that accesses the internet. But I'm wondering what's the compared to, say, other... Uh, alcohol addiction probably runs about 10%. Okay. So ten percent of the, a 10% addiction rate in the United States. That's a huge number, too. Huge number. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, but I, actually, you know, what's, you know what's an even bigger number? Food. Okay. We have a 70% obesity rate in the United yes, States. Yes, right, right. Uh, food is prob- activates the same mesolimbic pathways as the Internet does. Okay. It activates the mesolimbic uh, nucleus accumbens. And it releases dopamine just like the internet or gaming or sex or gambling. So, but food has a lot of medical sequelae that are very harmful. When you say sequelae, Uh, what do you mean by that? um, Consequences. Okay. You know, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, glucose disorders, diabetes, all, you know, metabolic disorders. All of these things are secondary to uh, obesity and being overweight. I mean, it sounds like you're sort of painting a picture of a society that keeps lumping on more and more addiction is a human um brain disorder yeah and it's it's inherent to being human okay um or actually it's probably not inherent to just being human because the limbic system is old it's it's part of the mammalian brain it's been around for millions of years animals will abuse substances and overuse yep. substances as well right they find herbs and plants that they know get them high and yeah. they will use them, okay. but they won't necessarily use them to a point where they will kill themselves. And it's probably much more difficult for them to get access to these things versus... Well, it's hard for them to watch the internet. <laughs> you got, yeah, you got... <laughs> too many elephants playing video games. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now back to the show. It's a human 
problem to have addiction. Addiction is, and then, so the bigger issue is what is addiction? Addiction is the overuse of a substance or behavior to alter mood and consciousness. And what is the cause of that? Why do we want to alter mood and consciousness? Why are we so unhappy? Why are we medicating ourselves? Right. And there's a great video called um, uh, Rat Park on YouTube. Okay. And it shows. (laughs) Ironic that you're telling me to watch YouTube, but go on. Well, it's, it's a great video because it shows some of the interesting research as to what contributes to addiction. And a lot of that has to do with social alienation and disconnection from each other. Now, do you think that that is also being exacerbated by the internet? I do, because I don't think the internet really connects people. Yeah. I mean, it has the potential to, but I dare say that nobody's really connecting intimately on Facebook. Right. So it sounds like a feedback loop. It is a feedback loop. So basically, the more you use it, the more socially isolated you become. The more socially isolated you become, the more you want to use it. Right. So I've read a lot about the increase in depression statistics over the last 20, 30 years. Um, There's also a 30% increase in suicide, I think, in the last 17 years. We also have an increase in adolescent and young adult and childhood obesity, which is directly correlated 100% with the adoption of technology, which makes sense because there's an increase in sedentary behavior. Yeah. So would you also say the same for some of these? I mean, I know it's hard to say for, for sure, but... With the, the depression increases and the well, we self-harm, think, we suicide. Think, we think that there is a possible correlation between the overall level of depression and the use of technology. But it, that, that would only be correlative. We can't right. really determine whether it's causative. Right. We do know that um, what's really interesting is we found that there's actually a drop for the last few years in adolescent substance abuse. Interesting. And one of the things that they're looking at in NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse, is why that's happened. Because it, you might on the surface say that's a good thing, that adolescents right. are using less drugs. But what we think is happening is they're getting their dopamine hit from the internet, right. from their devices, particularly the smartphone, yeah. which is basically a portable dopamine pump. Right. The smartphone is just basically, it's like having an IV drip into your bloodstream. And it does it with notifications to let you know that there's possible rewards waiting. And that makes you classically conditioned to keep checking it over and over again. So essentially our phones have conditioned us and addicted us. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree with you and I, I find it actually horrible and, and incredibly distressing. And so I, but I also wonder what is the way to mitigate this problem for teens who seem to demand these phones and what, and what do parents it's, do? It's a problem because the phones have become like a pet to most adolescents. So you can't take their pet away. They don't treat it like a communication device. They treat it like an extension of their identity. Right. And or almost a living creature. Yeah. So um, you, the only thing you can do is educate them on healthy or mindful use and teach them how to set appropriate limits and manage those urges and cravings when they have them. It's not going to go away, and the technology is not going to disappear. There is a bit of a backlash. I think people are starting to get the fact that it's kind of gotten out of hand. Yeah. And so even adolescents are starting to look at their use patterns and make changes. I mean, that's great, and I hope I certainly hope that happens. But I'm also wondering, I mean, certainly if you know your uh, teenage daughter came home with heroin you wouldn't say well you need to learn how to you know regulate your heroin use appropriately so why is it different 
Why is it different that you would teach people how to regulate their smartphone use versus... Well, people typically don't die from smartphone use, although there is an exception to that, which is when you combine smartphone use with driving. Right. Because the number of deaths due to distracted driving has actually surpassed alcohol-related deaths. Yes. So... But in general, uh, heroin is a more dangerous drug than the smartphone, uh, hands down. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Well, I'm just wondering if, because you're painting a very, I I think, um, dire uh, portrait of the addictive nature of the phone, and and I agree with you 100% on it. Um, And so, but then I'm just wondering why that doesn't get carried over into how do we you know, why, why don't we make clearer well, boundaries? I guess the better, the better question would be, why don't we have a healthier culture? Yeah. Why don't we have a healthier society? Why do people feel so alienated? Why are people shooting each other like they are? So, you know, why is mental health not considered a priority in our society? And why is an addiction treating addiction or preventing addiction? So there are bigger questions that are related here. You can't really separate it. Okay. We live in a culture that's pretty alienating. Um, we have uh, the largest economic divide in the history. Right. So um, a lot of people feel disenfranchised and right. frustrated and yeah. disempowered. Yeah. So, you know, why wouldn't somebody want to use something to medicate themselves or to numb themselves? But or isn't it our responsibility day? to intervene then or no? It is. Uh, it's also our responsibility to educate people and to keep them healthy and to keep them fed and to give them appropriate mental health care and addiction care. And we're not doing most of that. Yeah. yeah. We, we, in fact, we're cutting that. Mental health and addiction issues are really the end result of issues that start way before that. Dysfunctional families, economic sure. deprivation, yep. social alienation. Yeah, yeah. So we don't want to talk about those things. What we want to talk about is the end results, which is a little bit backwards. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot sexier to talk about the technology or the drug than sure. to talk about why people feel the need to use the drug. Right. I'm just given the way the technology has become a feedback loop. It yeah. seems as though it might be causing start, some of it. I think the answer is that you start in both places. You work on the actual drug, but you know we know from experience that taking drugs away or stopping them for people from using them, whether it's a digital drug or an actual drug doesn't really stop people's use. You have to stop the reason why people use and help the people and help them manage their use in a way that's healthier. Sure. So sure. people are not going to stop using drugs. In, the, in cultures where drugs are legal and in the few societies where they've actually legalized them, people still use them, but they don't die from them. Okay. So the issue is teaching people how to manage their use so they don't get into trouble with it. Mm-hmm. And that's true for technology as much as it is for substances. You talked about an intolerance of boredom. Yeah. Maybe you could describe that and explain what that looks like. Well, when was the last time you went into a waiting room and didn't see everybody in the waiting room with their phones out? We have literally lost the ability to sit and do nothing yeah. or to be bored, right. which is usually the catalyst for creativity and the catalyst for social interaction. Yeah. So if you're sitting in a, in a waiting room or on a bank line or in a mail, you know, people will start to talk to each other. Right. But if you have a phone in your face, basically the message you're communicating to everybody around you is that you're not available to talk to and you don't want to be talked to or right. you're not going to talk to them. 
So in a sense, what we're doing is we're creating a society where people are disconnected or they're conveying the message that they're there, but not really there. Right. So the intolerance of boredom is a problem because boredom is a springboard for so many things. Out of boredom comes the creative spark to right. do something different, right. to change something, to open your mouth, to go for a walk, to draw something, to doodle, to write something. If you're, if you're distracted all the time, you're never going to have the drive to move forward and to create. Yeah. And so in a sense, we've eliminated that natural human experience of doing nothing. And out of that nothingness comes everything. And the phone just keeps us chewing our cud electronically. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. Yeah. You've said what you think the result is for an individual. What do you th- see societally the result of that? You know, unfortunately, I think it's not a great picture because what I see is greater social alienation from each other, right. less interaction, less connection, less facilitation of feeling part of a community that's bigger than ourselves. The electronic community does not foster that. Right. I, I know people have talked about the electronic community and the uh, chat rooms and the um, social medias, but I have never felt connected with another human being through Facebook or through any social media channel. I call it social connection light. It's really a two-dimensional facsimile. Yeah, yeah, it's very flattening. It's flat and it doesn't, it doesn't have any depth and there's no context and there's no nuance and, and everybody only posts good things. You don't know what's really going on. You don't have a sense of the depth and breadth of somebody's life. Nobody talks about bad news on social media right? or pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid, if you put pain on social media, nobody will read it. But pain is part of life. Right. Well, and I assume dealing with pain is part of how you integrate yourself and how you become fully Well, managing mature. pain and sharing it and having people help you through it is part of being human. And if you rely on social media or your electronic devices as your only form of social connection, you're going to be sorely disappointed because you're not going to get the nutrition that you need socially and psychologically yeah. that we all need. Right, right, right. You started doing this stuff, you know, a very long time ago in yeah. the in the history of the internet. Anyway, I was on the cutting edge of it, so so to speak. Yes, I never expected to make a career out of this. This okay. was I did a, a brief study, I did some media interviews, and I thought it was going to be a flash in the pan. The whole thing would be done. And twenty years later, I'm here. Here you are interviewing me, and I do probably two to five interviews a week. Oh my goodness. And I've been doing it pretty much nonstop since the late nineties. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. That's not, I wasn't meant to. No, I understand. I understand. I just, my point is, is that it, it's just a topic that is not going away. Right. And I never expected to become one of the world's authorities on the subject because the subject didn't exist then. Right. I mean, it, you know, there was a handful of us that were, that sort of invented the field. So uh, I guess I'm sort of one of the godfathers of it, but um, uh, godparents, let's be politically correct. So my point is, is that um, we don't know where it's going. We, I mean, ultimately, I'd, I'd like to say that I do think that human, humanity has a way of figuring it out. And we do know when things ultimately aren't healthy and we try to change it, you know, but we're very slow on the uptake. Yeah. You know? I mean, we've known for years that junk food is not good for you, but it's still being sold and people are still eating it. In fact, they're eating it at record levels. You know, 
the more health conscious we become, the bigger the sales of high fat, high carb foods are. It's crazy. But Interesting. It's true. Okay. Is that what you're worried about here? A similar thing with tech addiction? I'm worried that, that there's a, a tendency to ignore almost what's obvious and that, you know, everybody knows that eating a McDonald's burger is not good for you. But our capacity for self-deception and denial is huge. All of us. I mean, humanity. I mean, we all know that driving and texting or driving and using your smartphone while you're driving is dangerous. I did a study with AT&T. 90% of people know it's dangerous, over 90%. But 75% do it. Right. So knowing something isn't unfortunately necessarily correlated to to changing it. Yeah. I think this is a good place to start to wrap up. And what kind of advice do you give people and what advice can you give to us as a culture? Well, I, I think the first advice is to start to take control of your technology. You know, let start managing it instead of it managing you. Make choices when you take your phone out. Don't bring it into every room you go into. Don't br- put it on the table when you're eating a meal. Don't sleep with your phone. Don't sleep with it next to your bed or under your pillow. Charge it in another room. Have times of the day or weekends or periods of time where you choose to turn off your smartphone or your technology. Let the world know that you're not always accessible. And, and the truth is you don't need to be. It's an illusion to say this, to, to believe this idea that you must be accessible all the time. And it increases our stress level. In fact, there's been some studies that have shown that if you have a phone, even if it's off, but it's in your eyesight, in the room, your cortisol levels, which is, which is a stress hormone, goes up. Wow. And the way you lower it is by checking your phone. So there's this compulsion mm, to check it to reduce that cortisol level. Wow. So I guess my overall advice is take control of your technology. Don't assume that you have to use it as much as you do, because the truth is you don't. That's a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much, Dr. Greenfield. You're welcome. One last thing before we go. I'd like to ask listeners to please go to whatever podcast app you use and put a review there for the Technoskeptic Magazine podcast. When the Technoskeptic switched from WordPress to Substack, our podcast feed also changed, so all our previous reviews went away. We'd really appreciate it if you help us catch back up to where we were and leave us a nice review. Thanks.